Welcome to God Podder, a podcast produced by St. Paul's Theological Centre based at Holy Trinity, Brompton in London. Theologians Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams and the occasional guests join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology and just about anything else. Good morning. Welcome again to God Pod. And um, yeah, it is the morning. It's quite, I feel, I feel it's quite a bleary morning this morning. I'm a bit weary of myself. You look a bit bleary this morning, Graham. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. <laughs> we take Boat it as of your virus rather than Well, I think so. Else. I think so. Are you a morning person usually? Usually, yeah. Yeah, I'm great in the mornings normally. That's all right. That's, yes. That's why I never see you <laughs> at your best because I'm not my best. Exactly. That's right. I don't see you at all. So uh, this morning we have uh, Mike Lloyd. Hello. And we have Jane Williams. Good morning. We also have another guest who is Rod Green. Rod is um, a student at Whitliffe Hall in Oxford, and he is uh, working with us for the week in the St. Paul's Theological Centre. Good morning, Rod. Good morning. Nice to be with you. Well, we have um, yeah, some various questions to uh, look at this morning. And um, the first one is one that's coming from um, uh, Olivier. And uh, Olivier asks us this question. He says, I was often told, and I also said myself, that God will never ask us to do something that is bad for us. That it might not be obvious when it happens, but in the long run, his choices are better for us. But the other day I wondered how one could apply this statement to certain callings, in particular to the callings of the martyrs. Hmm. So, basic question is, does God ever ask us to do something that's bad for us? Because I guess if you're being burned at the stake, it doesn't seem like a rather nice thing to be asked to do. No, it's not good for the Constitution, is it? Not really. No. Um, so who wants to chip in on this one? Jane. <laughs> Looking at you, Jane. <laughs> I wonder why that should be. Um, I think it's perfectly clear if you read the, the Bible at all that God does ask people to do things that feel bad for them. Um, if you think about Jeremiah, for example, his calling, it's a very, very hard one that's going to isolate him from his community. um, uh, God says he'll make him a a bronze wall around him so that he won't have to feel anymore. And that doesn't sound good for you, does it? Um, But I think the the thing that needs to be said is that you shouldn't seek things that are bad for you deliberately. You have to be perfectly sure that is what God's asking you to do rather than thinking if it's bad for you, it must be what God's asking you to do. I think there has been that tendency in the past to assume if it's nasty, it must be what God wants. And I think... The important point to make is that he's not asking us to do them because they're bad for us. He's asking us to do something good that may bring suffering in its wake. Mm. And what he wants is the good thing. I mean, in Jeremiah's case, he wanted him to be a witness to Israel, and that's a good thing. Um, Unfortunately, Israel being what it was at the time, uh, they weren't going to like what he was going to say. But there's no suggestion, and, and we must be careful against any suggestion, I think, that that God wants it because we need some bad stuff to yeah. happen to us. Because, yeah, Martin Luther used to, have to make this distinction between God's strange work and his proper work or his own work. Uh-huh. The idea being that you know, God sometimes does seems to do some very strange things which don't seem like the kind of thing that God would, would do. And his classic example of that, of course, is, is the cross. That, that doesn't seem like a, a place that... God would choose to send anyone um, to a cross, much less his own son. Um, and yet you have to kind of see that as... And, and yet, yet he wants to say that that's not somehow outside of God's will or God's design. 
as if this is an accident that just happened to Jesus and we can look at Jesus and we say, oh, it's a bit of a shame, isn't it, that that happened. Um, But somehow, strange, you know, through his strange work, he works his proper work, his own work. In other words, there's something that he he has in, that through death comes resurrection. And that's part of actually being in a, in a fallen world means that that's the way God seems to have to, to, have to work through his strange work to his proper work. Now the problem comes when we think that his strange work is the only thing that he does. Mm. It's as if you know he sends bad things because he wants to punish us or because he's not very nice or, or, or he doesn't like us or something like that. Um, but there's always a sense that you know that, that his strange work is done in order to to, to achieve his, his proper work, his own work, the thing he's really driving at at the end of the day, which is resurrection and life and Joy and everything else. I, I agree with that. For, you know, for the glory that was set before him, he endured the cross, and it's the glory that God. But uh, is Luther right? Is it God's strange work? Is it His work at all? But I guess the problem is if you say it isn't His work, then you begin to. If you look at something like the cross, for example, does that therefore mean that God is not present in the cross? Well, I think you have, and that somehow yes. that is not part of God's means of rescuing his world. Why, do you, why are you asking that question, Mike? You wish to tell us the answer, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, I am very cautious about um, this, my own work on the problem of evil. Yeah. I'm quite careful not, I, I want not to say mm. that God wills suffering at, at any point. Mm. Uh, I, I, I think with the cross, the, the, the answer to the question, does God will Jesus to go to the cross? The answer really has to be no, because he didn't will the sin that required yep. it. Sure. But in the context uh, of a fallen world, in the context world of, in of which a fallen will, it, it, it can be a part of God's purpose yep. and a part of God's plan, but not his will, I think. Uh, and you have to make a distinction between mm. will and plan here. God's plan involves a whole lot of things which are very unpleasant for Jeremiah, for Jesus, for mm. us. Um, these things are taken up into the plan and the purpose of God and invested with a significance and given a fruitfulness that they don't inherently have. Uh, but does he will that? I don't think so. And I think that's an important distinction to make. Well, in one's whole doctrine of providence, you have to, I think, make a clear yeah. distinction. It's a, it's a fine distinction. And I think the, the, I think the point I would stresses that in saying and I think what Luther is saying in talking about God's strange and proper work is in the context of a fallen world now that's not yes. saying that yeah. from the beginning of time before the fall or whatever before the entry of evil into the world that somehow God designed evil to be part of it yes. but if you like once the virus of sin has entered into the world it does seem that somehow God's way of rescuing and redeeming the world isn't somehow through taking on that very oh, yes. sin and evil that's and that. by defeating it not avoiding it and to that extent you know, one can still say, within the context of a fallen world, I think, that as seems to be the New Testament does say, that it is in some way part of God's. Well, you know, I think sometimes use the word will. I mean, how you, how you understand that is another question, but it is somehow part of God's will that God, that Jesus died on the cross. That is part of His. I think. I think purpose. I think, maybe I think that you both, know, both sides of this yeah. need to be guarded yeah. um, pastorally. I think my, what, the point I'm making is that a lot of people actually think uh, mm. that all the really nasty and unpleasant and wretched and tra- some often tragic stuff that happens to them must be God's will because it happens. Mm. No, sure. it's, it's because yeah. the world is messed up. It's precisely yeah. because the world is going the way God does not want it to go that these things happen. But I guess, yeah. But I guess the, the point that maybe the question is getting at is that sometimes, and I'm sure that's absolutely right, I think I want to say that, 
with you that, that um, you know, God does not send evil things upon us for that sake. Mm. But somehow his, his means of redeeming that sometimes is to send his servants precisely into those yes. evil situations. That, well, into that's the those, other pastoral side that one is... Yeah, you know, that's right. The not avoiding suffering. Sure. So that, you know, in, in Christ, God, if you like, sends Christ into the heart of that sinful, evil world to redeem it. Mm. And sometimes, like with Jeremiah, at Jane's point about that, that God sends us his servants sometimes into those very, very difficult situations in order to be part of his, his redeeming purpose within the world. Um, and it's very moving, isn't it, to hear Jesus asking God to take it away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not something that we should deliberately walk into unless yeah. we're perfectly sure that there are no alternatives yeah. in yeah. God's providence, I think. And, and when confronted with <clears throat> suffering, Jesus does not say, no, I won't heal you because... Uh, it's doing you good. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and, right. and I think just to build the pastoral thing, it seems to me that so often pastorally when people come to us with tragic situations or whatever, and somebody's been bereaved or something, lost a child, uh, Christians often say, I think, wretched things like, well, I'm sure God has a purpose in it. No, he doesn't. <laughs> it, it is a purposeless uh, surdically evil <laughs> event uh, which we mustn't invest with divine you know, sanction because otherwise that just makes it means that they see God as being against them as well as life um, that God can work through it and in it and bring good out of it uh, and rebuild life the other side of it is is hugely significant but but I'm, I'm just quite mm-hmm. careful that pastorally we don't add to people's problems by saying, yeah. I mean, I God think, wants this for you. I do think that's very important. And I think, but I think the other side of it is, is, is the missionary side of it, isn't it? That yes. you actually yeah, um, cannot preach Christianity as a religion that will always make you happy. Exactly. <laughs> no, that's right. um, and the, you can't go into that thinking, I shall be better off in every way mm. um, through believing in God. Although you would want to say that ultimately, believing in God is the only thing that makes life worth living. And it's something that um, that is quite countercultural too, isn't it? Because I think there is a strong, strong element of our culture that says that you know that, that um, any kind of difficulty or pain or something is to be avoided. And if you, if you if you can possibly avoid them, just just run away from them. Don't get into difficult situations. If you're in a bad situation like that, we'll run away from it. Whereas sometimes it does seem that you know notwithstanding all we've said about the, the origins of evil and so on, that if, if part of God's redemptive purpose is to send his servants into those very difficult, very uh, painful parts of, of the world and to, to share some of that, that pain, then, then actually the fact that you know, I or you as a Christian might be experiencing a, a really very difficult situation isn't necessarily a sign that we're not in God's will. It might actually be a sign that, that we're, we're precisely where God has sent us to be. I think that's right. But. <laughs> um, I, but if yeah. you can get out of it without yeah. either betraying your, your, your calling or letting other people mm. down or breaking moral mm. rules, mm. Uh, then, hey, break, get out of it. Mm. <laughs> yep. Yep. If there's anything you can do to avoid suffering yeah. that doesn't involve betraying who you are and who you're mm. called to be, mm. um, I, I'd, say, I'd say do it. Mm. But can you avoid that? call as a Christian if we are called to take up our cross daily and follow him Uh and if Paul as he understands his own apostleship a key feature of that is not just 
resurrection life, new life, but is also the suffering that accompanies that. Yeah. I, I agree. I think, I think there's going to be, but I think there's going to be plenty that comes inextricably entwined with our calling uh, that we don't want to add to it with stuff that isn't. Mm. <laughs> it's interesting that Olivia particularly mentions the martyrs because I think mm. um, they're a very interesting case in point. I've just been hearing quite a lot recently about the, um, the Melanesian martyrs um, who, uh, who, who died and whose death so shocked the society around them and they suddenly, it, that it made them see themselves for the first time. So that although one would not in any way have wished those Melanesian brothers to die, mm. their death actually helped to bring the conflict in Melanesia to an end, yeah. the civil war. Um, and, and again, that's not something that any of those brothers, as far as one can see, chose. Yeah. Um, but it's something that, through witnessing to Christ in a situation of war, simply happened to them. Yes. Yeah. And... And having said as forcefully as I can that, that suffering is, is not God's plan, a desire or, or will for us, oh. nevertheless, he can and does invest it with the most extraordinary fruitfulness, oh. as the, the cross is the obvious oh. example and guarantor oh. of, um, and, the, and the, you know, the blood of the martyrs being the seed of the church is, mm. is one of the huge examples of God taking that which is in itself wretched and turning some, it into something glorious. Mm. Uh, and that, of course, pastorally is also hugely important, mm. that it doesn't have to stay purposeless and fruitless and futile. Yes. Uh, it can be taken up into uh, the plan and purpose of God in the most extraordinarily glorious mm. way. Mm. And that there is joy in being a Christian as well. I mean, although suffering mm. will be an inevitable part of, of our calling because of the world we live in, mm. a lot of it is very nice. Yes, <laughs> there's also, I mean, there's also, there's also, I mean, and I, I say this slightly hesitantly, but I think there can also be joy in even being a martyr. You, you think of the martyr, martyr stories and, and from the early church, and often they're going to their deaths, not, oh gosh, I'm going to do this, this is really miserable, but actually full of, Full of joy, and I mean, I say that very hesitantly because I'm not, you know, I, I wonder whether I would. But but it is extraordinary how often, when you read those stories of the martyrs, there is a there is a note of joy in, in, in the yeah. the offering that's being made, rather than a than a kind of rather lugubrious, fateful, um, I've got to do this because it's good for me type. Approach. And that's partly, presumably, reading the stories of the early martyrs, a very um, very clear belief in resurrection. Mm -hmm. That actually, mm -hmm. sure. when you die, you will be <clears throat> going to live with the God yeah. whom you love and yeah. serve. Yeah, it's the point that it's not the last word, isn't it? I mean, death and sin and evil are not the last word. Yes. Which is, I think, the crucial thing to, to, to grasp. And however, however we understand that mm. within God's purpose, it's a kind of very misleading theology that ever sort of sense, senses that that is somehow God's last word or the last word within the world. So I think it sounds to me so what we're saying, we're saying both that um, Christianity isn't, isn't a, a religion of simple getting what's best for you mm -hmm. under all circumstances, mm -hmm. but also that God doesn't actually require us to be miserable in order to serve him. Absolutely. Brilliantly summed up. Thank you very much. Good. Okay, well, that's a um, uh, very interesting question, that one, and um, I hope that's some help in answering it. We've got to, we're going to move on to another one, which um, comes from uh, one of our Australian listeners don't do it Graham. Don't, don't <laughs> i'm do tempted <laughs> <coughs> so he says lately i've been thinking about whether in terms of salvation god chooses us or we choose him uh, since i was a kid i've always thought the secret password to salvation was simply believing it and speaking it out shazam i think that's an australian word um 
I'm saved. No, I'm not so sure. So, yeah, it's the whole thing of does God choose us or do we choose him? Um, and all, there are all the other questions around that, like if God chooses us, why does he not choose the others? And um, why does God seem to pick out one bunch of people and the others he just leaves to one side? That doesn't seem entirely entirely fair on all those kind of questions. So, um, Well, the verse in John 15, John 15, 16, has always been very important to me. You did not choose me, but I chose you, mm-hmm. Jesus says to his disciples. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that is actually a, a terribly important thing always to remember, uh, partly because otherwise you tend to think if you're a Christian, it's because you made the right choice and you're clever. Mm. <laughs> so it becomes a, a means of... And more clever than the other people who indeed, didn't make indeed. the right choice. Yeah. But also because sometimes when it gets tough and you want to give up, mm. again, you, you have to remember that, that it's not your choice mm. that God chose you. You are God's, whether mm. you like it or not. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I think that the, the, the story of creation suggests that God chose us in a very, very particular kind of way. God chose that we should exist at all. The fact that we exist at all is God's choice, God's choice of wanting to It would be difficult to have a, a say in that, wouldn't it? It really? would, Not yes. being non-existent at the time. Indeed. Yeah. I yes. find it very difficult to make choices when I'm non-existent. I'm limited in I'm that I'm sure way. you could manage it. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, thank you for making that point. <laughs> I, I like Karl Barth's line on this. Um, Karl Barth being the 20th century... Um, Protestant theologian uh, and he made the point that the, the one who is chosen the one who is elect uh, the one who is predestined is, is Jesus uh, from all time he's been chosen he's in the eternal held in the eternal love of God uh, and that we become chosen by being in him uh, it's not that God chooses some people for salvation and other people for damnation. That would be very difficult to reconcile, I think, with the God we meet in in Jesus. It's that part of the inheritance of being in Christ is our eternal rootedness and lovedness and chosenness uh, in the person of God. Um, And that that seems to me to get away from some of the kind of angst stuff that we get in terms of well am I chosen or am I not chosen even Augustine who was quite big on predestination and election uh, somebody came to him and said oh Mr. Augustine I'm not sure if I'm predestinated <laughs> and he said well go and get yourself predestinated <laughs> yes it's a very good answer isn't <laughs> which is a very good answer yeah. in other words become part of Christ yeah. in him is the eternal rootedness and the yeah. eternal loveness and chosenness um, I think the other thing that's worth saying is that um, I think it's it's we human beings who import this idea into God's theology that if if we choose one thing, that means we reject the other. And I don't think that you see that in the Bible. I think you see God choosing people so that they can make God clearer to other people. So God's choice of people is always on behalf of everybody. Israel being a case in point, Absolutely. called yeah. to be a light to the yeah. Gentiles, to yeah. the nations, not this nation and therefore not anybody else, yes. but this nation in order to win everybody else. Yeah. So yeah. God chooses in order to include. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a concept that I think we find very difficult because yeah. for us, choosing one thing means not choosing yeah. something else. Yes. Well, there's, a, there's another angle on it, which I think is there in 
in a lot of theologians from the past, I mean Augustine in particular, but it's there a bit in Luther and Calvin, other, others too, which is the idea of, and it's also there in sort of um, philosophical discussions of the same question, because it seems to me that the question of, you know, are we free to choose or are we not is not just a Christian question. You get discussions of it in, in secular philosophy as well. Absolutely. Um, are we free or are we determined? You know, it's, it's a by genes, by a cosmos, yeah, exactly. by Exactly. You don't escape behavior, that question by you know, jumping upbringing. out of Christian faith. It's just a question wherever you are. But I suppose one of the perspectives I think that does, that I've always found quite, quite helpful is, is, is that Augustine and Luther and others kind of say that um, this idea that we, we have a, you know, we are kind of perfectly, we have a sort of perfectly free choice as if we are completely uninfluenced by anything. Um, is actually a little bit of a myth that we we would like to think we have this neutral capacity called free will, which is perfectly free to choose between God and what is not God. Um, but actually, we are influenced by a vast number of things beyond our control. Now, we're probably more aware of that now than than even they were, because you know we're aware of how, how hugely we are influenced by our upbringing, by genetics. advertising, by marketing, by genetics, by all kinds of things, which means that our, you know, this, this very delicate thing, which we call our choice, is not as free as we would like it to be. And therefore, one of the works of God when he enters a person is to actually enable us to choose, to choose him. Yes. Um, so it's not so as if some, some capacity that we, we have within our, ourselves, which is mutual and free and, and, and easy, but God's work in us is to somehow release that will, that capacity to choose him, give us a desire for him that that, that um, makes a difference because I think the heart of choosing is desire. You know, we, we choose the things that we we desire, we, we long for, we, we, we love. And therefore, unless God gives us a love for himself, we will never be able to choose him. I think that's right. I think it's a high doctrine of the spirit that defuses mm-hmm. a doctrine of election from being a really difficult one. Yeah. Uh, and But all, I think I would want to say that the spirit does what the spirit can, can. Mm-hmm. In, yep. every, in everyone, yep. not that, you know, well, like this, this one's predestined, so I'll go and work and try and get this one to conversion. Sure. Um, mm. Working that work mm. Mm. Um, in every which way, basically. And I do think that is part of the, the, the rationale behind this question, is what, do we, what responsibility do we Christians have for people who aren't Christians? Yes. Um, mm. If God hasn't chosen them, then do we need to bother with them? And I think it goes back to what you were saying, Graham, that if, if you are filled with the love of God and actually um, desire to choose God, it goes with it that you desire to bring other people into that love, don't you? So that actually um, the two go together. It's not that I'm okay and therefore I don't care about other people because that suggests you actually haven't <laughs> found out very much about the nature of God. Yeah. And the very passage, I mean, one of the questions, the bits of the question that... Uh, didn't read it out at the beginning, Graham, <clears throat> but which this the question asks is, are the unsaved going to remain that way or change regardless of my actions? Um, and one of the interesting things, it seems, that the, one of the great passages that's often used to say, oh, well, we're just um, predetermined to, you know, predestined for salvation or for damnation is, is Romans 9 to 11. But in fact, that is saying the very opposite. Yes. There's the great bit where he, he quotes from Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. Oh. In other words, the categories are fluid. <laughs> you yeah. can move from one to the other. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I, I, I do think that a, a kind of strictly Calvinist thing would stop one from going off and yeah. <laughs> evangelizing because there's no hope of anybody moving from one category to another yeah. than the categories that they were created in. Sure. Um, but yeah. it seems to me that biblically 
both Husserl and Paul suggest that, yeah. that you can move from one another and certainly that's what his whole life was predicated upon the basis mm. of mm. he was going off doing missionary journeys for goodness sake mm. Is, is, is there a bit of disagreement between Graham and Mike on that? Probably. Because, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hope so. When you, Graham, um, mentioned desire oh. and that it is our desire that shapes our will, and so God shapes our desires, but our wills remain free, it sounded like you were, you were just putting it, moving it back one stage, if you like, so that actually God remains responsible and chooses us by shaping our desires, but we choose him because we will what we desire. And that just seems to be shifting the problem back one. But I wonder if we can talk about maybe, which we haven't done so far, different levels of causation and bringing Jane's point that actually when we choose something, we reject something else. But is that the same with God? If God is Trinity, but there are at least three people in, three persons in one there are not three wills. Can you have that sense in which actually there are different levels of causation? There is the divine causation and there is the human, and they are not incompatible with well, each other. That, I'm sure that's true, and I'm sure you know, that's very important when we come on to talking about Richard Dawkins and science and that kind of thing. You know, there are different levels of explanation. You can explain something scientifically, uh, and that answers one set of questions. Or you can interpret it, explain it theologically, which answers a different set of questions. There are different kinds of, of explanation and different kinds of causation. But I'm very anxious that at no level of causation do we say God causes somebody's damnation. Uh, and that we just simply cut that off. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm really yeah. unhappy with any sense in which God does that. Because um, it undermines the incarnation, doesn't it? Yeah. What is the point of God coming when we were still sinners? <laughs> if not to change it. If not, if not to... Yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. Yes. And it undermines, I think, the goodness of God. Indeed. I think it's very difficult to believe in a good God who wills the eternal damnation of his creatures. And it, can, it, and it does come back to kind of pastoral advice, doesn't it? Because... Again, you know, it's almost as if the question, you know, which people agonized for, for centuries over after the Reformation, you know, am I predestined, am I not? And that's a kind of classic sort of Protestant question, well, not even, not even a, maybe a Catholic one as well. But, but it's kind of the wrong question, really, because it's, 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 it's actually not, not doing the right thing, because actually what, what the gospel says to us is not, you know, just spend your time puzzling over whether you're predestined or not. It's just simply... Believe it. Mm. Just trust it. Just don't try and do anything to kind of earn it anyway. But here is this 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 word, this pledge, this promise of God, and all you got, all you have to do is believe it. So don't, you know, don't, don't ask yourself the question about about am I predestined or not. Just 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 believe the word, and then you are. So, so back, so into this, back know, to Sir Jam. In other words, the question Practice. back to Shazam. Yeah. Shazam. 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 Yeah, yeah, just that's right exactly. There are some lovely people um, on Saturday mornings on Victoria Street in London who um, go up to passers-by and say, "Are you saved?" And when I answer, yes, I am, they always look a bit worried and sort of push me and say, well, are you sure? <laughs> yes, I am sure, I always reply. And they say, well, well why, I was <laughs> why are you sure? And, <laughs> and I think there is that real um, history of building uncertainty into people mm. that um, does seem to me to undermine God's whole initiative in mm. coming to mm. reach out for us. Mm. Yes, I am sure that I'm saved because mm. God was in Christ reconciling mm. the world to himself. Mm. Yes. That doesn't yeah. mean that everybody is saved. People can reject that, mm. clearly, and do. And but it helps to be able to say that not because 
I made some decision at a certain point in the past, because that then makes it then dependent upon my decision and the strength of that decision and everything else. Um, but it's back to this point about I am saved because I'm in, in Christ, because of what Christ has done, because of mm. kind of things we've been saying, rather than because yes. of my decision. Though, yes, although God doesn't force us. Nope, nope. And therefore, yeah. the decision is part of that process. Yeah, yeah. it's idea that... Yeah. However, um, as if the decision the is, if you like, instrumental, not causative. In other words, the decision doesn't cause God's grace. It just simply oh, it doesn't. No, yeah. that's right. It is a response it's the to God's grace. By which we God's grace, God's grace. Is, is, is prior. And, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and then, of course, you are left with a very, really tricky pastoral question about whether, if people really were able to see God, if things um, in their life and their history and their genes and so on didn't prevent them from seeing the goodness of God, whether it would actually be possible to reject God. Um, and that's one I think that we just don't know the answer to, isn't it? Um, whether uh, well, again, I think I do. So oh, well, good, Mike. Please tell me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Mike is omnipotent, the, <laughs> or omniscient. Anyway. The, the fall of the angels <clears throat> tradition would suggest that it's possible to be in the presence, immediate presence of God, and reject it. Mm. Um, now, but having said that, I do think that your question is pastorally right. It is also possible that people think that they are not accepting God, but it's because of the kind of images of him that they've been presented with by the church, mm. distorted ones, mm. from family, from mm. fathers, from whatever. Uh, and actually, if they were to see him as he truly is, they might say, oh, well, yes, now mm. that yeah. I love. Mm. Uh, so I, I, I agree with yeah. what you're saying, I, but, I, but I think it... One has to hold open the possibility that somebody could actually look at God on the throne and say, I, I wish I were there. Mm. I'd like to put myself there instead. And conversely, it is possible for someone to be in the presence of evil and not choose that either, yes. which is what will yes, be true in, 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 the, in the new heaven and the new earth. You know, it's not that the, we'll suddenly become robots unable to do what is evil, but it's just that we won't choose it mm. because, because we will see it for what it is. We will see it for the ugly, repulsive thing that it is, and we will never choose it. Yes. One of the things pastorally about the creation story is God's first world word over us is, behold, you are very good. Mm. Um, and from the transfiguration and the baptism, you know, you're my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. Now, there are mm. other things that need to be said, but it's in the context of those being mm. the first and the last words about us. Good, you know, that we are a good project, a good being, and that God loves us. Mm. Everything else slots into that basic framework and structure. Good. Well, always in God, Paul, we start off with a list of about four or five questions that we think we're going to sort of rattle through in a half an hour. <laughs> we only ever manage about one or two. Um, that's because we always disagree. Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah. No, it's because we have such wonderful things to say about all Oh, that's what it is. Well, you do, Jane. Because, <laughs> they're, such, because they're such good questions, so please keep exactly. sending them to us. Great to have you with us, Rod. Great to listen to what you all had to say. And contribute, too. Yeah, that's very good, too. And um, so uh, we laid it those bits out of us. <laughs> because they were clearer than anything we said. <laughs> they were show us <laughs> up. That was GodPod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.